0: Good morning. good morning my name is taylor i'm one of the pastors here and it's my privilege today to open god's word for us so would you turn in your bibles to 1 corinthians chapter 12 we'll be in 1 corinthians 12 and as you're turning there would you also join me in prayer Heavenly Father, we give you this time and we ask for your help. Help us to have ears to hear what your word says. And as we hear with your help, would you even now in this time begin the much needed work of transforming us? We ask all of this through Jesus Amen. We have been in a series this summer called Overflowing Generosity. We've been looking at different aspects of a generous life and paying particularly close attention to this theme in Scripture that the giving that constitutes our generosity is always downstream from God's overflowing generosity. So this morning I want to consider with you <clears throat> the theme of generosity in service. And to do that, we're going <clears throat> excuse me. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 through 11. <clears throat> now, there are var- <clears throat> excuse me can i get a water i'm sorry <clears> 1 <throat> corinthians 12 starting in verse 4 <clears throat> now there are varieties of gifts but the same the same spirit and there are varieties of service but the same lord And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 8 For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these... Are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, what I want you to see in this passage is one very simple but profound truth, which is this that every Christian is empowered by God for the benefit of other Christians. So I want you to see that that is in this text and it's my hope that we would all be motivated by this reality to a life of generous service. Every Christian is empowered by God for the benefit of other Christians. What Paul does in this paragraph is he takes that one idea and he has us look at it from three different angles. So the first angle is he emphasizes the first half of that idea that every Christian is empowered by God. And then second, he, he holds up the second half of that idea that the purpose of God's empowering is to benefit other Christians. And then third, he, he shows us Some evidence to support his claim that every Christian is, in fact, empowered by God for the benefit of other Christians. So let's look at this idea from these three different angles. So, first, every Christian is empowered by God. We see this. In verses 4, 5, and 6. Look at this again with me. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So the triune God has distributed different kinds of gifts, ministries, and activities among God's people, but the emphasis here is that that means that all the variety of gifts within God's people share a common source, which is God. It's the same Spirit, it's the same Lord, it's the same God who empowers all these things In everyone. So the emphasis is on the fact that every gift in God's church is equally from God. Now look up at verse 1 uh, in chapter 12. Verse 1 says, now concerning spiritual gifts, which shows us that Paul is addressing a question here. And he spends the next three chapters addressing a question or maybe a number of questions about which the Corinthians wrote to him on the topic of spiritual gifts. So he's he's launching into this discussion. He will carry it all the way through the end of chapter 14. And so early in this discussion, in our text, he is at pains to emphasize the one divine source of spiritual gifts. Now, before we go any further, it's worth pausing to consider what are spiritual gifts? Uh, This is a helpful definition that I found from Wayne Grudem. He says, a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. When the New Testament talks about Christians, those who have turned to Christ with saving faith and repentance, one of the things the New Testament says about us is that we are new creatures, that the Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again so that we are now a part of the new creation that has already dawned in Christ. And one result of this reality that Christians are regenerated, reborn, a part of the new creation, one result of that is that Christians have spiritual gifts. We have abilities and callings that serve to help the whole church grow in conformity to Christ. So that's a spiritual gift, any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. And as we read not only this passage, but if you keep going in the rest of chapter 12, on into chapter 13 and 14, what starts to become very clear is is that the Corinthians had a problem which Paul was seeking to correct here. And the problem was that they, or at least some of them, elevated certain gifts over others. And in particular, you see in chapter 14, that they seem to be very enamored with the gift of speaking in tongues. And one of Paul's... Aims in this text and in many of the paragraphs that that follow, one of his aims is to help them see that speaking in tongues, as great as it is, is just one among many gifts. And as he stresses here in verses four through six, all the gifts are from God. So it's as if Paul says to a Corinthian who, who speaks in tongues, Brother, You can't say that your ability to speak in tongues is somehow supernatural and from God, but your brother's ability to exercise the gift of administration is somehow less spiritual. All gifts, Paul says, are from the same spirit. And although the details have changed, we are not that different from the Corinthians in our propensity to rank gifts and ministries and other believers. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian thinker and leader from the last century said this, nowhere more than in America are Christians caught in the 20th century syndrome of size. And here's how he explains the syndrome of size. Size will show success. If I am consecrated, there will necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc. And then Schaeffer adds emphatically, this is not so. The syndrome of size operates in our hearts when we assume that a ministry is more valuable when more people see it. The syndrome of size uh, has taken root when we think that the spiritual impact of an act of service directly correlates with the volume of applause that we get for that act of service. And what Paul is saying here in verses 4 through 6 is that every act of service comes from God's empowering spirit. And so the most obscure, unseen, uncelebrated act of service is supernatural. It is an expression of the power of the living God. And so so for those of you serving faithfully, perhaps in obscurity or even in anonymity, unseen, uncelebrated, you need to remember that your quiet acts of faithfulness Are supernatural in origin. Your acts of service bear the dignity and the worth of their divine origin. Some of you, perhaps, are holding back from serving because you assume that you have nothing to offer. But what these verses say is that if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus, you do have something to offer. You have some kind of ability or gift that is distributed by God. Now, maybe you would say, well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. In that case, one thing you can do is just try stuff and see what happens. How does a a child discover what his or her favorite sport to play is? They discover it by trying different sports. So so try serving and see what you're good at. But in addition to that, even when we serve perhaps outside the area of our gifting, outside of our, our comfort zone, the principle of verses 4 through six, 6 still holds true that God empowers the service and the ministry that his church needs. So don't, don't hold back from serving other people out of a fear that you have nothing to offer. That is simply not so. Every Christian is empowered by God. That's verses 4 through 6. And then in verse 7, Paul turns this idea around and looks at it from a, a second angle, the, the second half of the, the statement as I've summarized it, that, that God's empowering of Christians is for the benefit of other Christians. God's empowering of individual believers is for the benefit of other Christians. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So when he talks about the manifestation or the the, uh, revealing of the Spirit, I don't think Paul is changing subjects. I think that's sort of a summary statement for the gifts and the services and the activities that he mentioned in verses 4 through 6. Those can all be summarized as manifestations of the Spirit. The, the Spirit of God makes himself known in the people of God in these abilities which he has distributed among us. So in a sense, that first half of verse 7 is, is gathering up and summarizing verses 4 through 6. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. But to that summary, Paul now adds for the first time here an explicit purpose statement. Why? Why is it that there are varieties of gifts and varieties of service and varieties of activities? Why is it that each believer has a manifestation of the Spirit? What does verse 7 say? For the common good. So all of these gifts and empowering works of God among his people have as their aim the advantage or the profit of the people of God. So let's let's stop here and, and unpack this a little bit. What kind of benefit does Paul have in mind? I think we get a pretty good idea of the kind of common good Paul is thinking of when we look ahead to chapter 14. And you can flip over there, 1 Corinthians 14, just look at a couple of verses. But this idea emerges in 1 Corinthians 14 that whatever else the church needs from its members, near the top of the list is what we call, or what Paul calls, edification or building up. Look at verse 2. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue Builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So I I think if we were to ask Paul, those would be the kinds of categories he would want us to think in when we think of the common good in 1 Corinthians 12 7. And you can turn back there now. So God's empowering of his church has as its aim the building up of God's church. And that is not directly speaking about the building up of the institutional structures of the church. More directly in Paul's view here, when he thinks about the building up of the church, is the development of our collective holiness and love and unity as the people of the church. So so the institutional realities are important, things like the building, the budget, the, the, the plan, but they are important insofar as they support the spiritual maturation of the people of God in holiness and love and unity. That's why gifts are given to the church so that the people of the church can help the other people in the church become more like Jesus. But if that's true, if that's what Paul has in mind in verse 7, maybe another question would be, well, why doesn't he talk about the common good of like, our communities, the, the, the people outside of the church? Isn't this... A little self serving or a little insular to, to mainly be concerned about serving the common good of a particular faith community. And to that, we could say a couple things. First of all, it is true that Christians are called to serve the common good of their communities. We are to do good work in our vocations and volunteer in our neighborhoods and schools. We are to talk about Jesus uh, with people who don't yet know him. These are all ways that we try to contribute to the the flourishing of the place where God has, has put us. But this paragraph is an example of something that we see throughout the New Testament, which is there is a kind of priority given to Christians serving their fellow Christians. I'll give you one example where this is really clear. Galatians 6.10. You don't need to turn there, but Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to everyone. So there's the, the common good writ large, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we don't do good to Christians uh, at the expense of or as opposed to doing good to others, but there is a a priority on our callings to do good to one another. Now, why might that be? Well, there's probably a number of reasons, but one big reason, I think, is if the church is to be a blessing to the world, one of the best gifts that the church can give to the world is a church that looks like Jesus. So the the spiritual gifting and power that God has given to the church is precisely for the development of that kind of church, an assembly of people who smell like heaven and look like Jesus. That's why we have gifts and abilities to help stir that up in one another. Now, why might the Corinthians have needed to be reminded of the purpose of their spiritual gifts? It seems that one of the reasons we've already talked about is they needed to not rank gifts and look down on some people who didn't have the perhaps more publicly visible or obviously supernatural gifts. But there's another thing that I think starts to become clear in this section of the letter which is that not only were some Corinthian believers undervaluing their brothers and sisters who were differently gifted, it seems they were also misusing their own gifts for their own glory. They were using the gifts that God had given to them for the building up of the church, and they were turning them into little monuments of their own impressiveness. It's really a a kind of spiritual embezzling. When somebody embezzles from a church or from a a, a charity, what what makes it so morally outrageous is that funds that were given to serve the mission of the organization are deceitfully redirected for the private enjoyment of of a single person. And we do something like that when we take the gifts and abilities that God has given us and we aim them primarily at the building up of our own reputations, our own little empires of self. And so we too need this reminder that verse 7 gives us, that the reason you have any ability or power from God is not to impress other people, it's to help other Christians grow so that the world might know where their hope lies. So if this is true, what, what implications does this have for our service? Here, here are just a couple. First of all, if you're serving, it's worth asking yourself, why? Why do you do what you do? And I think this becomes especially important when you're serving in, in a regular role where you, you're expected to keep doing it. It's easy in that situation to forget why you're doing what you're doing. And our, our natural sinful bent is to slowly do whatever act of service we're doing for ourselves. So maybe for some of you, one of the reasons you're growing weary in your ministry or in your service to others is that you are getting frustrated in an agenda of self-glorification. In other words, you're trying to make much of yourself and it's not really paying off that much and so service starts to become a grind and a burden. Second possible implication, if you are looking for a way to serve, This verse, verse 7, I think suggests two questions, two diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself. What am I good at, and what are the needs? What am I good at, and what needs do I see? What are the needs of the people around me? Now, the best case scenario is to find some need that resonates with, that overlaps with the thing That you're good at. But even if you don't find a perfect match, just asking the questions helps to lift your gaze to start looking, to make the connection between the things you're good at and the needs of God's people around you. Third, if you're like me, I tend to operate in a paradigm of duty and obligation. I don't know why, but that's just how I'm wired. So I go through life and I come to situations and my instinctive question that I ask myself is, what what do I owe someone in this situation? What is my, my duty here? And that is a fine question. But one of the things that my wife has done to help me be more generous is to, in different ways, propose a second question, which is, what good might I accomplish in this situation? And you, you see, that's, that's one way of measuring the difference between duty and generosity. Duty says, what do I owe? And I'll, I'll discharge my, my debt. Generosity says, what possible good could I inject into this situation? Because, again, verse 7 is saying that's why you have the gifts and skills and abilities that you have. It's to do good. It's to help the people around you love Jesus more and look like Jesus more. And, and one more thing. Don't limit this. If you're thinking about how can I serve, I feel like I need to do more. Don't limit this category to only organized church programs. Those are important. Church programs always need volunteers. That's true. But this reality transcends those kinds of opportunities. This is bigger than just supporting a church program. Anytime you give of your time and expend your effort to help another believer, you are doing what verse 7 is talking about. And if you're going to become a more generous person in this area of service, it's not going to happen by just waiting around for some dramatic opportunity for you to do some grand gesture, some, some great, noble act of service. Generosity is a habit. It's, it's, a, it's like a muscle that needs to be worked. So look around the places you already inhabit and, and ask, how can I serve? Serve the people in your family. Do a chore without anybody asking you. Be generous and kind in the little things and start to build this this posture, this this way of being in the world that is characterized by generous, self-giving service. So, verses 4 through 6. Paul holds up this idea that every Christian is empowered by God for the benefit of other Christians. And in 4 through 6, he really emphasizes the first half of that. And then in verse 7, he he turns this idea around and says, now look at the second half, that the purpose of this is for the benefit of other Christians. And then third now, in verses 8 through 11, he lays out the evidence. He makes his case for how we know it's true that every Christian is empowered by God for the benefit of other Christians. And the evidence that he puts forward is the observable diversity of gifts in the church. He points to his, his readers, he points his readers to the observable diversity of gifts in their church that they can look around and verify. Now, if you look at this list in verses 8 through 11, For us today, it generates a lot of questions. Like, what is the difference between an utterance of wisdom and an utterance of knowledge? Questions like, should we still expect to see uh, miracles and healing happening in the church today? Questions like, what does it mean to distinguish between the spirits? But it's interesting that Paul clearly does not intend to explain these gifts in this text. He he spends zero time unpacking or defining or illuminating what he means. And the reason, apparently, is that he could list these gifts and take it for granted that the Corinthians would know exactly what he was referring to. So the way that the list of verses 8 through 11 is functioning in Paul's argument is that it's the proof... 4 verses 4 through 7. Think of it this way. You've got a Corinthian believer. Speaks in tongues and is proud of it. And Paul says, hey, look around your church family. Do you see any other gifts operating? And And the believer has to say, yeah, yeah. These are all operating in our church family. And so Paul could say, do you have all these gifts? And of course the answer is, Well, no, I don't. I don't have all these gifts. Okay, are you saying, you believer who speaks in tongues and is proud of it, are you saying that all these other gifts don't matter? That they don't really do anything for the church? And the obvious, unavoidable answer is no, of course not. All of these things are are powerful evidences of God's presence and work in the church at Corinth. And so the, the thrust of verses 8 through 11 is, Look around you, see the diversity of gifts that God has distributed, and be persuaded that every Christian is empowered by God for the benefit of other Christians. So obviously one intended effect of this section of verses 8 through 11 is to humble arrogant Christians. But I think it has another effect, or at least it can have another effect, which is that I think it helps shed light on how we can have sustainable service. And I know sustainability, that's kind of like one of those buzzwords that almost starts to lose meaning because it gets used so much. But at the same time, I think the reason why sustainability is such a buzzword is that so many things in our lives are actually unsustainable. And service often becomes one of them, right? We we serve in ways that we can't actually keep up with. We, We burn out. We give up. We quit. Maybe some of you are feeling that this morning. And this little section in verses 8 through 11 helps us engage in sustainable, generous service. Generous service does not have to mean working hard until you burn out and crash. Because If this is true, then you are not expected to do it all. In fact, you can't do it all because God has not given you all the spiritual gifts which he has given to his church. So in the very next section, he starts talking about the church as the body of Christ. And he makes some really important points One implication of which is, if you are a member of Christ's body, on the one hand that means you do have critical work to do. But if you are only one member of Christ's body, then you cannot do all the work. So if you're the kind of person that has a hard time saying no because you see a need and you think, how, how is this going to get done if I don't step in and do it? Maybe one of the, the ways you can fortify yourself to say no is to remember, I don't have to do it all. God has not asked me to do it all. God, more importantly, has not equipped me to do it all. And when we think about sustainably generous service, there's another important consideration, which is woven all throughout this passage, And that's grace. Undeserved kindness. Paul has stressed throughout this paragraph that we serve because God has already generously given to us what we need to serve. The abilities, the gifts, the activities, they're all from him. They're all expressions of his undeserved kindness to us. So we, we serve out of that bounty. But if we zoom out even further in the New Testament, we see another way in which grace motivates our service, and that is the service of Christ. Jesus said in Mark ten forty five, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when you think about the Christian faith, at the very heart of our faith is a king who serves. And not just serves in the abstract, but a king who has served us. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are the beneficiary of the greatest act of service imaginable. And so rather than motivating service in ourselves or others by guilt by fear, by a sense of obligation. The kind of service that Paul has in mind is motivated from beginning to end by the grace of God. The grace of God through Jesus' service, the grace of God through the empowerment of the Spirit. It's grace from Him from beginning to end. So may we grow in reflecting that grace in the ways that we serve one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. It, it reaches us in many different forms. It is abundant. It is sufficient. It is fitting for all of our needs and weaknesses and failings. And so we give you thanks, and we ask that you would continue to show us grace and help us to be a people of generous service. We pray this through Christ. Amen.